Hello, and welcome to the Salisbury Pediatric Associate AudioCast newsletter for the week of August 29, 2022. This corresponds with volume 12, issue number 37. This week, we're going to look at COVID update number 69, including quick hits. We're also going to look at a learning redo. The thought of the week is honesty in the provision of information is so refreshing. Something we need. We need honesty around information and not the biased opinions and targeted responses that people are trying to get us to believe a point here or there. We just need data. We need to look at it and decide. Song of the Week, Dancing in the Dark by John Adams. Okay. So coronavirus update number 69. Omicron in the United States as of the week of August 13th was mostly BA.5 at 89% with a smidge of BA.4.6 and BA.4. What do we know? We know that nothing is changing on the morbidity front. BA.5 appears to be just highly infectious, but nothing more. Hospitalization and Death does not seem to be any worse than it had been two weeks ago. Infectiousness still is quite incredible. So for the quick hits, number one, in the interview with Dr. Offit that I highly recommend if you haven't had a chance to do it, listen to it, it is uh, number 27. Paul Offit is a expert in the field of vaccinology from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And we... Pretty, went pretty deep in discussing what's going on with Omicron, the boosters, and the current state of disease. A couple of big takeaways. One, boosters for non-risk-based teen and young adults are unlikely to provide benefit while offering a small but real level of risk for myocarditis. Two, boosters are offering minimal protection to the nation as a whole from a transmission perspective. At best, 8 to 12 weeks of protection against symptomatic disease. Number three, Dr. Offit voted against adding Omicron antigens to the fall's booster as there was limited data that it would add add any benefit. He was in the minority at the FDA advisory meeting, thus this fall's booster will have the new genetic strains in it. Four, the boosters could, not shown yet in humans, block future variant immunity to newer strains through viral immune imprinting, something called original antigenic sin. Five, humans need to pay more attention to their health to mitigate disease over time through immune solvency. Six, we as a society need to stop tiptoeing around the concepts of lifestyle-induced disease, risk, and in a non-judging manner, educate everyone in these risk categories. Seven, he clearly stated that we have achieved our goal with vaccinations, the reduction of death and hospitalization, and it appears the two-dose primary series was enough to achieve it. And seven, high-risk groups are the ones that should vaccinate every time a new one is available based on the guidelines. In a recent piece in Time magazine, Dr. Offit also offered these comments. Quote, That has vaccine experts divided, Dr. Offit, a member of the advisory committee, says the strategy makes him uncomfortable for several reasons. He notes that the data presented from Pfizer-BioNTech and Moderna in June involving their BA.1 booster shot 
which focused on the levels of virus-fighting antibodies the vaccine generated, were underwhelming. They showed that the neutralizing antibody tires were between 1.5 and two-fold greater against Omicron than levels induced by a booster of the ancestral vaccine. He says, I'd like to see clear evidence of dramatic increase in neutralizing antibodies, more dramatic than what we saw against BA.1, before launching of a new product. We're owed at least that. While conducting human studies does take more time, off it says, even a small trial involving about 100 people to measure their antibody levels after getting a BA.4.5 booster would be helpful. You can boost people and measure their neutralizing antibodies two weeks later, he says. Such information could also be critical in setting realistic expectations for the Omicron booster. The public might feel it's a panacea that signals the end of the pandemic, but without any data showing how well the booster will protect people from not only getting sick, there might be unrealistic expectations about what the booster can do. I get a little nervous, frankly, when I hear this booster is going to be miraculous, off it says. For the counter-argument in that same timepiece, we have this quote. The totality of evidence is relevant here, says Dr. Offer Levy, director of the Precision Vaccines Program at Boston Children's Hospital and also a member of the FDA's advisory committee. We are in a situation where we need to pivot as variants emerge, and if we try to be too rigid in our approach, we will always be behind and not giving the population optimal protection. Levy says that the latest Omicron-specific boosters that the FDA is considering contain a combination of mRNA targets against both the original virus, the ancestral strain, and the Omicron BA.4.5. So the data on safety and efficacy from the original vaccine is protecting against hospitalization and death is relevant. While the data on this vaccine does come from animals, using that data to decide whether or not to authorize the booster is a matter of hedging bets. There is data showing that even vaccinated and boosted people can get mild to moderate COVID-19 because their vaccine-induced protection is waning. So boosting with a shot that is better matched to Omicron subvariant circulating now is a reasonable bet, even if the data on its efficacy comes from animals and not people. I think that's the right decision, says Levy. For me, I stand in Dr. Offit's camp. I am not hedging any bets when my risk of death sits at 0.000033 currently, without even ever boosting. Death rate from COVID sits at its lowest level to date in the pandemic endemic reality. I remain grateful that people like Dr. Offit are looking at the data, scrutinizing it in the context of risk and not just blanket guidelines, which are not individualized or at least risk stratified and based on animal models or other things that to me in the current climate don't appear to make much sense. If this was Ebola and people were dropping dead left and right, boy, we'd be hedging bets left and right, but we're not. Number two, from JAMA, we find that 88% of patients reporting a smell or taste dysfunction after contracting SARS-2 completely recovered within two years. 11% of patients took up to two years to recover, whereas most recovered by six months post-illness. This was a small study in pre-Omicron. The key piece is that it appears that most, if not all, fully recovering despite the other studies that showed brain mass loss in the olfactory regions, which initially portended bad and long-term concerns. This comes to us from Boscolo, B-O-S-C-O-L-O, Rizzo, R-I-Z-Z-O, et al., 2022. Number three, 
If you are interested in the intermediary animals that could play a role in future shifts to SARS-2 genomics, this article discusses possible intermediary animals for future risk. You can find it at M-A-D-H-U-S-O-O-D-A-N-A-N-J 2022 in JAMA. So that's an article you can go pull up if you want to read more about intermediate animals. I didn't want to get into that here because I didn't think it was as relevant, but worth, worth looking into if that's of interest to you. Number four, quote, SARS-CoV-2 infection can result in the development of a constellation of persistent sequelae following acute disease called post-acute sequelae of COVID, or PASC, otherwise known as long COVID. Individuals diagnosed with long COVID frequently report unremitting fatigue, post-exertional malaise, and a variety of cognitive and autonomic dysfunctions. However, the basic biology mechanisms responsible for these debilitating symptoms are unclear. Here, 215 individuals were included in their exploratory cross-sectional study to perform multidimensional immune phenotyping in conjunction with machine learning methods to identify key immunologic features distinguishing long COVID. Marked differences were noted in specific circulating myeloid and lymphocyte populations relative to matched control groups, as well as evidenced evidence of elevated humor responses directed against SARS-CoV-2 among participants with long COVID. Further, unexpected increases were observed in antibody responses directed against non-SARS-CoV-2 viral pathogens, particularly Epstein-Barr virus, otherwise known as mono. Analysis of circulating immune mediators and various hormones also revealed pronounced differences, with levels of cortisol being uniformly lower among participants with long COVID relative to matched control groups. Integration of immune phenotyping data into unbiased machine learning models identified significant distinguishing features critical in accurate classification of long COVID, with decreased levels of cortisol being the most significant individual predictor. These findings will help guide additional studies into the pathobiology of long COVID and may aid in the future development of objective markers for long COVID. Klein et al. 2022. This is a very important study as it leaves us with the biomarkers of disease etiology with elevated levels against Epstein-Barr virus, which is infectious mononucleosis, as well as lower cortisol hormone levels. For me, we have noted the elevated EBV levels in our clinic in chronic fatigue teenagers and PACS long COVID patients. These results reflect a burnout Im immune system hormonal axis. SARS-2 is known to dramatically alter immune activity in the very ill with exhausted T cells noted in those that recover post-hospitalization. Exhausted T cells have limited capacity to handle viral illness. Thus, latent, herp latent herpes viruses like EBV and CMV could pose a further stressor on the system, further utilizing resources to try to handle these infections that were previously dormant. This is tiring. In my mind, this is further evidence that long COVID is a genetic immune viral mismatch. There's another article here, Amadi, A-M-H-A-D-I, et al. 2022, that you can look at on these topics. I think that we are seeing a repeated picture of human immune dysregulation that drives the inability of the immune system to handle effectively viral or and bacterial pathogens leading to chronic immune activation, leading to exhaustion and diseases like chronic fatigue syndrome pediatric autoimmune neuropsychiatric disease associated with strep or other pathogens, and long COVID. 
The reality appears to be with different variables in play, including gastrointestinal dysbiosis, immune exhaustion, autoantibodies against viral killing mechanisms in an autoimmune type pattern, and hyperinflammation coupled to host genetics is driving most of this long-term disease. Let's look at the next paper. Number five, quote, the kinetic aspects of this longitudinal investigation were revealed in a number of ways. First, GI post-acute SARS uniquely correlates with the newly expanded cytotoxic CD8 and CD4 T-cell populations at T3, including SARS-CoV-2-specific clonotypes, which get activated not during acute disease, but at convalescence when PASC was identified. Whether this correlates with the reported GI viral shedding that can occur in some post-acute COVID-19 patients will require additional studies. But the finding that GI-PASC also involves bystander activation of CMV-specific T-cells suggests that the additional levels of nonspecific T-cell activation may also contribute to GI long COVID. The activation of autoreactive T-cells has been reported in many infectious settings, including COVID-19. This comes to us from Sue et al. 2022. Yonkers et al. in 2021 also found similar findings in children with MISC the multi-inflammatory syndrome in children, making the gut the potential ground zero for long COVID and possibly chronic fatigue as we get more research in the future. For me, I keep again honing in on this data for three reasons. We are stuck with SARS-CoV-2 and other viral pathogens for the foreseeable future. Repairing your gut microbiome may prevent these MISC or long COVID type post-infection problems. Three, stress, sleep, and exercise are huge pieces of this puzzle that keeps our immune system solvent. I keep leading us back to the same, same spot. Make sure your diet is up to snuff. All right, let's move on to number six. Risk of myocarditis is much higher following infection than, than vaccination, says a new study in the journal Circulation. However, when broken down by subgrouping, things are a little bit different. Quote, associations were stronger in men younger than 40 years for all vaccines. In men younger than 40 years old, the number of excess myocarditis events per million people was higher after the second dose of mRNA than after a positive SARS-CoV-2 test by six-fold. It's not a small number. In women younger than 40 years, the number of excess events per million was similar to that after the second dose of mRNA vaccine versus a positive test. This comes to us from Patone, P-A-T-O-N-E et al., 2022. So here's a study in circulation that we are finally, good Lord, finally doing something that we should have done a long time ago, stratifying by age, risk, comorbidity, and all the et cetera things. And the age of machine learning is absolutely fundamentally inappropriate for our government and the hallowed halls of medicine to be giving blanket statements like everyone over the age of 12 should be getting a booster vaccine when we know very clearly that that is not necessary based on stratified data. But people weren't stratifying the data. They were blanketing it. This is a problem. Again, leading in my mind to more distrust with these institutions of healthcare delivery and learning. So for me, that data set for circulation says, man, there's not a whole lot of value in giving a 
booster dose of this vaccine, knowing that the second dose was causing more problems myocarditis-wise than natural disease in young patients, boys especially. So follow the data. Number seven from the New England Journal of Medicine. A phase three randomized controlled test trial of metformin, ivermectin, and fluvoxamine in non-hospitalized patients, adults with overweight or obesity who were enrolled within three days after the diagnosis of SARS-2 infection occurred. 1,323 of those patients received immediate release metformin for 14 days, ivermectin for three days, fluvoxamine for 14 days, metformin and ivermectin combination, metformin and fluvoxamine combination, or a placebo. The primary outcome was a composite of hypoxemia reported by the patient's emergency department visit, hospitalization, or death due to COVID-19. At 14 days, a primary outcome event had occurred in 26% of the participants overall, and the incidents did not differ according to treatment group. This comes to us from Bramante et al. 2022. This is a well-done analysis. One of the greatest risk factors of death as the patient test population is obesity. We are left knowing that these meds are not preventing death. Number eight, science heavy. From Nature Communications, we see potential therapeutic news that is exciting. Quote, mutational enhancement of SARS-CoV-2 viral fitness can arise from effects on receptor engagement and evasion of neutralizing antibodies with structural origins in spike glycoprotein. Here, we have examined these effects, demonstrating domain-specific differences in the roles and structural mechanisms of S-protein mutations. Although such mutational changes can pose threats to natural and vaccine-induced immunity, the existence of preserved epitopes within functional domains holds great potential for future antigenic focus. This is highlighted in our analysis of variant SARS-CoV-2 spikes, which despite exhibiting effects on antibody evasion and ACE2 binding shared a conserved epitope within a receptor binding domain, which conferred broad neutralization. The structural impacts of variants of concern S-protein mutations offer insight regarding the differential mutational heterogeneity observed for the N-terminal domain and the uh, receptor binding domain. While variants of concern mutations within a receptor binding domain are limited to only substitutions, the N-terminal domain hosts a large array of deletions and substitutions along with one documented insertion as seen in the BA.1 subvariant. These N-terminal domain mutations predominantly localized to three loops constituting the N-terminal domain neutralizing supersite. Our structures of variants of concern S proteins and complex with ACE2 demonstrate minimal structural changes in the receptor binding domain, reflecting its functional constraints in cell attachment, only permitting mutations that preserve the ACE2 binding interface. In contrast, our structure of the gamma N-terminal binding domain confirms the role of mutations within the, this domain as enabling structural rearrangements of antigenic loops a feature common to all variant spike NTDs, including alpha, beta, delta, epsilon, BA.1, BA.2, and likely BA.4 and 5. These rearrangements are likely directed primarily by immune evasive pressures. Taking together these contrasting structural effects between variant and terminal domains and receptor binding domain mutations likely arise due to different functional requirements and selective pressures between these domains. Despite these domain-specific mutational pressures, several lines of evidence have emerged from this present study demonstrating the existence of pan-variant epitopes. This comes to us from Manar, M-A-N-N-A-R, et al., 2022. 
In layman's terms, this basically means that the spike protein of all variants of concern appears to have a region on the spike protein that could be a universal target for an antibody to neutralize the ability of SARS-2 to do its replicative damage. This could lead to a medicine that works for at all individuals that are at risk in the future. That would be amazing. I know that was technical, but it really sort of gets to the point of why we need to keep looking for these potential areas to mitigate risk long-term. Section two, learning redo. The learning and education of our youth through college has long been the main goal of the government and parents alike. Parents just want kids to learn and love to learn while the government follows metrics of success that they can use as a proof of quality education. Overall, the prevailing wisdom is that the U.S. falls and fails as compared to other industrialized nations in three major categories, math, reading, and science. We rank 26th, 17th, and 21st on the PISA test respectively in the past, as noted in 2012. However, when you compare our size and demographics to other countries like us, we rank second only to Canada. And furthermore, when you look at our peak achievers, they are always in the top one to three. So what does this mean when you break it all down? We still have the best education system in the world for the bright and the hardworking if you take it all the way through college. Where we struggle is with the early years, and especially for the underserved populations, which is a multifactorial problem including parental involvement, teacher engagement, screen overuse, and much more. An article in Scientific American Mind has a perspective written by Joe Boalar, B-O-A-L-E-R, and Pablo Zoldo, Z-O-L-D-O, regarding math in the U.S., they discuss the analysis of the PISA scores in regards to math and how kids learn. The PISA study found that children learn in three sub-patterns, memorization, relational learning to previously learned topics, self-monitoring approach where they focus attention on topics that are yet unlearned. The memorizers turn out to be the worst at maintaining and keeping math skills. Guess which country is the highest in the total number of memorizers? Yep, you got it, the United States. The so-called teach-to-the-test method. American teachers are so stressed with test-heavy regulations that the children do not explore topics in depth, in depth, where instead they memorize and use rote procedural knowledge. Aside, I dare say that it's very akin to my medical school training. Memorize, 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 and then memorize some more. It was only after residency that I learned to think as an inspector of individual human disease and not the dogma of previous memorized knowledge. The old knowledge is the present only as a framework to build upon as evolution of humanity occurs before our eyes. For example, my memorized dogma was that colic is a brain-gut-nervous imbalance. Reality is that it never made any sense, and now we know this is clearly not true, and it is more of an immune reaction to casein dairy proteins. Thinking through a problem is so much better than trusting an answer that is clearly inadequate. How do we take this information and apply it to our greatest asset? Children. The remainder of the article does a nice job laying out a framework for changing the learning paradigm. They note that the American desire to test time tests appears to be losing ground as a good way to analyze performance. Studies have shown that timing tests impairs working memory and increases anxiety levels in students due to stress. But if American classrooms begin to present the subject uh, one of open visual creative inquiry accompanied by a growth mindset, messages, more students will engage with math's real beauty.
It gets to the root of the issue. Is it really necessary to memorize stuff with Google at your fingertips? As a physician, that is clearly unnecessary, and I spend inordinate amounts of time teaching the medical students that I train that they need not memorize, other than in the acute care setting where you need to memorize something in real time because somebody's crashing on you fast, i.e. ER, ICU. What is the process to be learned? We attack patient cases as the TV show House MD did. I could care less whether you know inane statistics about a percent of a disease, but care greatly that you can think through the process of elucidating the disease's root cause. It is clear to me that if your child is struggling on tests at school, have them repeated at home with no timetable. The end goal is getting the answers right over time. That's it. The test at 100% over time is really what matters. To do it in a time course that says you can do it rapidly, it's a useless metric. Praise the effort and the end result with a growth mindset. Help them to love the process. I remember my physics class in college where we proved a theorem on the blackboard. Speed and memorization were non-existent. It was long and amazing, but by the end, we learned that E actually did equal MC squared. It's all relative. Have a great day, everybody. That's the end. Remember, as always, hug those kids. There is a recipe in this week's newsletter. It's a club sandwich, one of my favorites. Go to salisburypediatrics.com, health and wellness tab. Click on the newsletter and you'll see the recipes. Other than that, have a fabulous day. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this newsletter is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. The newsletter does not constitute the development of a provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.